Really love that last song that we sang, When We See Your Face. Could almost just read the lyrics to that and then we can go home because I think it captures pretty well the things that I want to say to you today. But we won't do that. But it is my sincere prayer that the, the sense and the, uh, the, the truths that that song brought to our attention would be also brought to you by this sermon today. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. And if it's helpful to you, there is an outline in your bulletin that you can follow along as we, as we uh, look into the Word. Romans chapter 5 is uh, found on page four, uh, 942 in the, in the blue Bibles in front, in the seats under, front of you, under the seats in front of you. And if I could find it, we'd be in good shape. There we go. There was a famous study done in the 1970s where children were left alone with a marshmallow for 15 minutes and then promised a second marshmallow if they didn't eat the first. If you want an entertaining way to pass about a half an hour of time, uh, look up some of the some of the videos on YouTube. They're actually quite funny. The conclusion of all these these studies, though, were that kids were better at the kids who were better at delaying gratification were found to be more successful later in life. And over time, though, there's been some follow-up studies because they were interested in this topic and they wanted to see what would happen if they changed the the circumstances a little bit about kids and their marshmallows. One of the studies done in 2012 added either a broken or a fulfilled promise before giving the child the option to have one marshmallow now or two marshmallows later. Uh, and the kids that believed the promise, this is what they found, the kids that believed the, that the promise was true were willing to wait significantly longer for a better reward than those who believed that the promise might be broken. Conclusion, hope that works must be found on promises that will be believed to be fulfilled. Our passage today is going to call attention to a similar principle for us. <clears throat> we all go through adversity regardless of its shape or its size. But to trust God and to be hopeful about the future, we must believe that God is going to fulfill his promises. Our inability to trust him looks different for each of us. Maybe this morning you're looking to the future and the only thing you can see is darkness and sadness there. For others, it's going to look like holding tightly onto a lifestyle or decisions that you've made that you think will make you hopeful or happy about your circumstances. And then for some of us, our lack of trust is expressed by a short fuse and an irritable manner. Each one of us must choose. Are we going to trust what God is doing in our trials or not? And if we are going to trust him, then we need to know how. And I think that our passage is going to tell us that the means of trusting God is hope. Which is why we need to be resolved in hope this year. Hope in the promises of God. Pick up your Bibles and read Romans 5, 1 through 5 along with me. This will be our text. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, 
And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Brothers and sisters, God is not in the heavens designing dark days for you. As our theme says, as Christians, we can live confident and joyful lives, even in adversity, because the Christian life is lived on a path of hope grounded in the glory of God. Paul starts us off in this passage with verse 1 by summarizing the previous several chapters of Romans. Since we have been justified by faith. This short statement is the heading under which this passage and the next several chapters are firmly underneath. The gospel hope that we have is a direct consequence and benefit of our justification by faith. In verses 1 through the first half of verse 3, Paul says that there are three outcomes of that justification. Justification leads to, number one, peace with God, two, access to grace, and three, hope. This hope is the main burden of the text and where we are going to spend the bulk of our time But first, let's look briefly at the other two things that follow on from our justification. First, we have peace with God. That is to say, we are no longer enemies with him. The hostilities between us brought about by our sin have been entirely put to rest. Because we are justified, our sin is no longer on our account, and so we can live at peace with God. Now, the second thing that Paul says that we receive with our justification is access to grace. Now, this is not grace in the sense of saving grace, a.k.a. justification. That's what all this is under. But instead, this seems to be a reference to the ongoing favor that we have with God as his precious children. His demeanor is gracious towards us. Now, these are important because the fact that the Holy Spirit lives in us is critical to the hope that Paul is going to try to teach us about. No Holy Spirit, no hope. And it is hard to conceive of a way for us to be in closer proximity to God than when the Spirit being made to live inside of us. Hence the need for peace and for a gracious attitude or grace with God. And now it is finally in the, in the verse part of verse 3 that Paul calls our attention to the hope that he wants us to understand. Hope of the glory of God. By invoking the glory of God, Paul causes our view to be lifted from our current circumstances. The glory of God is an eternal thing, which existed before the world and will exist after the world. And here he is saying that we are hopeful because we will share in that glory. Now let's pause here for a minute. I do want to give some definition to this term hope. It's what we're going to be talking about. So what is biblical gospel hope? Well, what what it's not is wishing or wishful thinking. Gospel hope is confident that God is for us and not against us. And that in heaven, all the sin and adversity we experience here will be gone forever. And that the only thing that is left is paradise. So for the rest of our time, when I say hope, I will usually mean this. A sure and certain expectation of future good and glory drawn from assurance of our salvation and heaven is our reward. Let me say that again. Gospel hope is a sure and certain expectation of future good and glory drawn from assurance of our salvation, and heaven is our reward. Back to our text from this morning. We rejoice because we have a sure and certain expectation of participating in the glory of God. 
That is what's been given to us by being justified. And that rightly, and I think obviously in many ways, should cause us to rejoice. What else could we do upon receiving glory from God and being able to participate in that with him in heaven? That naturally follows that that would cause us to say yes and rejoice. But Paul doesn't stop with that. He doesn't stop there. We are also to rejoice in suffering. Really? Rejoice in suffering? And with that, we come to the crux of our message today. How is it that in our suffering, we can have a sure and certain expectation of future good and glory? Those two things don't seem to go together. But Paul's going to show us how they do. And for that, we'll need to turn to the second half of our passage. Second half of verse 3 through verse 5. And it's here that we will see a way of living that will strengthen us and develop our capacity not to simply endure trials, but by God's grace to be able to rejoice in them. Now, as we've seen, hope is not the product of wishful thinking, but it's an outflow of our salvation in Christ. This hope, as we shall see, comes to us through a God-ordained and spirit-fueled process that allows us to also rejoice in suffering. And I want to break it down piece by piece so we can see how growing in hope will have this effect. First, though, we need to recognize that by saying that we rejoice in our suffering, Paul is not trying to minimize our suffering in some kind of a way. To feel the bitterness of death or fear and sadness in light of a cancer diagnosis, to feel disappointment when life's plans don't work out, or fear when threatened with persecution, is actually a natural thing. We're not expected to somehow not feel these things. The hope and rejoicing that Paul describes here is a hope and rejoicing in the midst of these feelings and realities. And so never think that if you are to hopefully rejoice in your suffering, that it means you must deny the adversity you are in or how it makes you feel. That is silliness. And to pretend that like it is true will short circuit this process and backfire causing despair instead of the hope that we need. So our suffering is real. And Paul says that suffering produces endurance. So what is this endurance? Well, let's again start with what this is not. It's so helpful sometimes to understand what something is by looking at what it's not. Endurance in this context is not a closed-eyed, white-knuckled toleration of your circumstances that somehow manages you get from one end of them to the other. No, this endurance is something that over time actually produces strength. This is the endurance of an athlete who's pushed beyond his limits for the purpose of extending his limits. Just as suffering increases endurance, so endurance improves character. That's the second phase in this. So we have endurance that causes us to gain strength, and in the same way that that happens, that endurance also improves our character. It is impossible to walk through significant trials in life without being changed. The only real question is whether the change will be for the better or for the worse. Those who walk in faith will see the strength that endurance provides feed into holiness of character. And when I say character, you should hear things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and things like these. Illustration might be helpful. I think that most of us, even those who are not sportsy, like a good sports movie. 
The reason for that is that in a good sports movie, the movie's not actually about sports. It's about trial, endurance, character, and hope. Now, the plot usually starts with the team who has lost its hope. We usually watch as they are crushed by their main rival team, and as they leave the field or the court, they leave in total despair. And then usually, a new coach arrives on the scene, right? And what is the first thing he does? He makes them work. He pushes them until they can't go any further, and then he pushes them some more. And some even leave the team because they can't handle it. But those that stay, they begin to change. They become faster, better, stronger, and all because of the trials that the coach presses into their lives. And then they begin to win some games. Now, interestingly enough, it's often not only their strength and endurance that change. Somehow during all of this, their characters begin to change too. Sportsmanship increases. Failure does not phase them as much as it used to. They become kinder off the field and better overall people. Strange that those things should change because the coach is pushing them harder to do more things. But often it works that way. Now finally, about 80% of the way through the movie, the big game comes into view and we begin to see that the trials they have endured, the endurance that they have built and the character that has been crafted has produced something else. It's produced hope. Because they begin to see that they could actually win the big game that they thought there was no chance of at the beginning. Now here we need to leave our illustration behind because it starts to fail us. The reality is is that in this life and in sports, all of these things might not result in winning the big game. The other team can still outdo them and win. But the glory of our situation is that losing is not possible. Look at verse 5. Based on godly endurance and godly character, true gospel hope grows. And while that hope does provide solace and joy in the present, and that's what we want to talk about for a while after we finish going through the passage, how does that look like in the present? That is true, but the reason it is true is because its real power is that it looks to the future. It longs for the day when this world will fade and the believer will be translated to heaven to be with God, but without sin or its suffering forever. As an assurance of that, the Holy Spirit lives within us and pours the love of God into our hearts. And God is a fa- but God is a faithful giver who will never take back a gift once it's been given. So that love that is being poured into our hearts now by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the deposit that we have that we know that when we come before God on that final day, after we die, that our hope will not have been in vain. Our hope will not disappoint. Because we have the love of God now, and if we have it now, we will certainly have it then. So that's the path of hope that God that will help us to trust God in the coming year. Endurance, character, hope. All coming out of our sufferings, and our trials. So now I want to pivot. And I want to spend a little bit of time thinking about how it is that we follow this path. If you're following on the outline, we're at following God's path of hope. Now first, we must not assume 
First thing we must do is we must not assume that somehow God's intentions towards us are negative. We're tempted to do that sometimes, aren't we? When we go through adversity, especially as people are committed to the truth that God is sovereign in all things, it could be easy for us to conclude from life's trials that God's intentions for us are sometimes not good. Maybe God's indifferent to my needs or struggles. Or perhaps God's grumpy with me because of my sin or my slowness of growth. And so he sends hard things my way as a result. Or maybe if you're not as convinced about God's sovereign control over all of life, maybe you think that God is just not quite able to prevent the bad things that happen. We need to fight against all of these assumptions about God. They're bad assumptions. We never need to see the future in bleak terms. That doesn't mean we don't. We never need to see the future in bleak terms. Because God is not planning a life of hardship for us. That is not what he's doing. God is not planning a a life of hardship for you. Remember our text. God is always in the process of leading us on a path to rejoice in what? To rejoice in the glory of God. He desires good things for you and for me because he's our father. When teaching his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that the nature and character of God is to never give a stone when a child of his asks for bread. God is a father who gives good gifts to his children, Jesus says. Now some of you are going to be tempted to say, but it happened to me. I asked God to bless me with good things, and yet seemingly only bad things have come. I have cancer Somebody just died. I can understand that. We cared for my father-in-law for years and watched as Alzheimer's took his life. Less than a year after that, my father was diagnosed with lung cancer and died. And only about a year after that, Mary Margaret was diagnosed with cancer herself. You can be sure that all through that time, We were asking for good things from God. So did he give us a stone? Put a pin in that. We're going to come back to it. Application number two, or thing we must do, number two. We must recast our understanding of good and bad. We live in a sin-soaked world that is broken in any of a thousand, thousand different ways. The dark, hurtful, and bad things that we experience really are dark and hurtful and bad as a result of sin. We never want to deny that in any way. But it is also true that the Bible is clear. What we can see from our perspective is never the whole story. A few examples would be helpful. The story of Job, where he experienced terrible things. Stuff, gone. Kids, dead. Self, Diseased. But scripture helpfully pulls back the curtain so that we can see that Job was actually being called to be a soldier in a spiritual battle that he helped to win. Not quite what it looked like on the surface. A couple of examples from Jesus' ministry. There was the man who was born blind. And Jesus said he was born blind for a particular purpose. He was born blind so that Jesus could heal him on that day and minister to the people that were around him. 
That's why. Or we have the the example of Lazarus, where Jesus purposefully delays his visit so that Lazarus dies. That doesn't make sense to us if that's all we can see. But from the story, again, we can see that Jesus did that so that he could raise Lazarus to life again. In all of these cases, the bad things we see were really bad. And yet, they were part of something that was bigger and gloriously good. So we must recast our understanding of the bad events in our lives and see that our Savior and Father in Heaven may have a larger purpose at play. Plans for our welfare and not for evil to give us a future and a hope. We must never doubt God's good intentions for us. Back to my family's trials. Has God been giving stones to my family for the last three years? No. No, he's not. No matter how much the thing in my hand looks like one to me at the moment, God has been faithful in all of our trials. And as we are getting more distance from them, we are beginning to see that more and more and how that is true. No matter how much in the moment it looked like we had a stone in our hands, we did not. God answers our prayers and he gives us what we need. And yes, it's not always what we ask for, but when we need bread, he doesn't give us stones. So how do we do this? How do we recast our understanding? First, we must understand that spiritual realities are to be valued over physical ones. So anything that grows and increases our godliness or grows and increases our dependence upon God needs to be viewed as a good thing. No matter how hard it is to go through in the moment. And that is hard when adversity is pressing in on us, isn't it? but it's what we must do. Second, we must see the hard things that we experience are often instances of the sin and evil that the gospel is in the process of redeeming us from. I said a minute ago that this world is broken in any of a thousand, thousand different ways. That is a true thing, but what we know in the gospel is that we are being redeemed from that. We are being redeemed through that. And so we need to see some of the hard things we experience as the things we are being redeemed from and the Lord is leading us through as a shepherd leads his sheep. And finally, we need to remember that the gospel leads us somewhere that's not here. The gospel leads us to the new heavens and the new earth where all sin and all sadness is undone and will trouble us no more. However, for now, we are still here in this world, and the sin and evils of this world do still plague us. So in the meantime, God brings these trials into our lives, because he does bring them to us, but he brings them into our lives to use them as his means to refine us and to do something wonderful. Because by the time we get to heaven we are looking more and more and more like our Savior. And those trials and those hardships that he has brought us through 
are intended and designed and given to us in order to mold us into the image of Jesus Christ. And who wouldn't want to look like him? Next, we need to fight our natural propensity to exaggerate. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, our notion of our trials is apt to present them in exaggerated number. But when we come to count our mercies, our tendency is to diminish them. We magnify the hosts of our troubles and underestimate the armies of our benefits. We fight this natural tendency by actively looking for blessings and praiseworthy events in our lives. And they are always there. Even when the darkest, uh, the darkest days of our adversity and when that adversity has blinded us to their presence, there are things for which we can say thank you to the Lord and bless his name for. Sometimes these blessings come alongside our trials. They're next to them. Think of uh, in the midst of job loss or serious illness, we still have joyous vacations with our families and holiday meals and things along this line. Now, those are simple joys, but they can be praised. We can praise God for them. We have progress in faith that we see along that way as well. So sometimes the blessings come alongside of our trials and we need to train ourselves and work and exercise and build endurance and character such that we are able to see them. Other times, and in other cases, the trial itself turns out to be a blessing in disguise, like it was for Betsy and Corey Tenboom in the Nazi concentration camp when they were free to hold Bible studies and to spread the gospel, the hope of the gospel to other prisoners because the flea and lice infestation was so severe. Something for which Corey Tenboom, she would never find a reason to thank God until Betsy called it to her attention. Once we do see the blessings we have, we must strengthen our hope by actively praising God for them. And this is, this is hard. Because sometimes our adversities blind us so much to whatever else is going on, the only thing that we can see is the big thing that's going wrong in our life at the moment. Which is why we must work to see the things that are blessings in our lives. And when we see them, we must, when, when things seem darkest, we must do the hard work of praising God. And if we do so, that will be a balm to our soul in the midst of our adversity. And finally, we must embrace the process that produces our hope. This brings us back to our passage. Suffering by itself does not produce hope. It produces despair. If the only thing we do is wallow in our trials, we will not be hopeful. The only way that hope is produced from suffering is for the suffering to be made meaningful and instructive in some way. And that's what this passage teaches us. So for those of you who are under the weight of a significant trial and can't seem to see anything in your future except gloom and clouds, I need you to know, even if you can't see it, that God does have good things for you. Make no mistake... There's no break glass fix here as if there was an adversity extinguisher embedded in the wall of your life. There's nothing that you can just whip out when when life feels hopeless to gin up for ourselves something that makes us feel better. 
The way of today's passage is harder than that, but it's also better than that. Hear me, brothers and sisters. God is for us in a most spectacular kind of way. He sent his son to die so that we could be with him. He is for us. This way will build into our character strength and a hopeful trust in him that allows us to rejoice in both the glory of the gospel and in our trials, but only if we will embrace the way. Now, I've had a front row seat to watch my wife go through this. It was her father that we had to care for all those years, and she's the one who has cancer. And sometimes she complains that darkness and clouds are all she can see. And she fears that perhaps she is failing in her Christian walk in that sense. But I can say as someone who watches all the ups and downs from beside, that she is faithfully and beautifully embracing this process. Trials over the last few years are weighty. But I can see that her ability to carry the weight of sorrow is so much greater now than it was. Because the Lord has been helping her to bear it. Her character is stronger than it was. And as a result, I think many in here could attest to this. As a result, she is a good help to others who need ministry. And that's because of the character that these trials, in part, because of the character that these trials have brought and built into her life. But as in this passage, the real gauge is hopefulness. She doesn't often see it, but she is more hopeful now than she ever was before our trials began, at least when measured by these things. Love for her Savior and her longing for heaven. I have seen both of those things grow in exponential size in her character and her life over the last three years. Now, she needs this sermon as much as any of us do. But she's following this path. God is being faithful and she is growing in gospel hope. That is an example. If you do the same, the same will be true for you. If you are justified by faith and you are in the process of faithfully walking through the trials that God is bringing into your life, he will build in endurance and character and that will result in hope. Hope that helps you to see and long for heaven. Now as I close, I want to say something to those who are not in Christ, who have not committed themselves, do not have justification by faith. What is it that you can take away from a message like this? Sounds like an insider deal. And yeah, there's some ways it is. But I can say this for sure. Adversity is common to all mankind. I know that you experience the same kinds of trials that Christians do. The question, of course, is how do you process them? And to be sure, there are many many things that you could take away from a sermon like this that could have some worldly success. You can let your suffering build strength through endurance and reform your character in positive ways. And as a result, experience some measure of a hopeful view about the future here on earth. But the reality is, at the end of the game, 
without Jesus and gospel hope in this world, whatever good feelings you manage to gin up is the best you will ever have. Once this life ends, the hope that you manage to have will end too. You see, the real promise of this passage is a promise for eternity, which will not disappoint when we come before God on the last day. If you doubt that, then go through this little thought experiment with me. Let's say you can navigate life here well, have no serious health problems, and get what many people are striving for, a long and full life. What is it that you'll have when you get there? Exactly what kind of long-term plans does the 90 or 100-year-old make? Are they really planning a big party for their next birthday? Or investing in long-term projects? No, they're not. They're saying things like, don't get old. (laughs) What they and you have to look forward to is dying and then coming before God, carrying only the hopes that have been built in this life. And according to this passage, here's the question you will be asked. Where is the love that I poured into you during life? And if you have not come to Christ, there will be none. And therefore, the hope of heaven will be put to shame, as this passage says. So come to Christ. Receive gospel hope for your trials here and life eternal. But you, O believer, struggling one who submits to trials, being strengthened unto endurance and refined in your character under the guiding hand of the Savior who justified you, this life with all of its suffering, will be the worst you ever have. And when you come before God, bearing the love which has been poured into you for all of your life, you will enter the heavenly rest prepared for you by Jesus. And as hard as it is to conceive of right now in your trial, as hard as it is to see, you will know the realities of 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He who promised is indeed faithful. So cling to him in hope. Those promises are true, will always be fulfilled, and never be revoked. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the gospel. And for the fact that in Christ, we are not left without hope in this world. And that the hope that we have is sure. And while we want and desire that hope to have temporal, this world benefits, and it does. We so look forward to the day when this world hope is translated into next world reality. Keep us until that day. Grow us until that day. Help us to have 
gospel hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.